Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Dan here. I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast from Risk Commercial Media called Breaking Even with former golf pro Ned Michaels. We cover everything from golf to real estate, options trading, and sports betting. Each week, Ned is joined by some of the biggest names in golf and sports handicapper, Jonathan Coachman. Guy Danny and I drop by to attempt to fix Ned's swing at the markets. New episodes drop every Thursday, so follow it in your favorite podcast store and don't forget to leave us a review. I think Guy uses the term Danny and Fuego, and it's been used on this podcast. It's been used on the Twitter. It's basically been used about your NFL picks and how I started out kind of willy nilly, <laughs> just taking the other side of him. And that started to be, it wasn't even like a coin flip situation. You got to talk to us a little bit. You're 10 and 0 on this podcast with your NFL picks. We're only through week seven. Is against that correct? the spread too. It's not against, yeah. against, All right. against the spread. Okay. So some of our viewers are actually really interested in how you go about it. What's your secret sauce here? What are you doing in the NFL? Similar to uh, trying to find maybe stocks or things that you kind of look at a little bit, what might be undervalued and overvalued in the marketplace. When we started the season, I said to you guys, historically, the Super Bowl winners and losers, but particularly the loser of the Super Bowl, the people think they have a chip on their shoulder, they come out, you short them all. I think Kansas City this year is like 1-5 against the spread or 1-6 against the spread. So that's part of the mentality is that the public believes that someone's better than they are. Same with like a stock and earnings might be. So each week before I see the lines, I go through and I pick what I think the lines are going to be. Sometimes I'm within half a point. Sometimes it's off by three or four. The ones that are off by three or four points, which is big on an NFL line, I look and see, well, I must be missing something because there's an injury or something. And the market's pretty efficient, right? The stock market's efficient. The lines, it's not like I'm going to know something that these odds makers aren't. But then every once in a while, I see something that stands out to me. I'm like, Patriots was a perfect example against the Jets. I still don't know how the line was seven last week. Belichick off a loss historically. Belichick against rookie quarterbacks. I was looking. I thought maybe... It was a major anyway. So I kind of deduct all that. In the, the day, it's it's a pretty efficient market. I'm lucky to be ten and zero. I'm sure when as soon as I lose one, everybody should bet. I'll lose ten in a row. I'm sure. I certainly hope be. not. I don't think that. But I always say I want to say this, and I've said this on this podcast and others. The best use of handicapping for people that want to do the real work is at the horse track, and you get a guide. You can see the pedigree of a horse where they've raced before. But the worst thing you can do when you walk into a track is to look at the odds on the board, which is what the stock market has been for you underwrite that particular horse, right? You come in to do a track, you see even money, one-to-one. You're like, well, that must be the best horse. And you see a horse, it's 10-to-one, and you ignore it because you think, oh, the public... So this is about thinking away, I guess what I'm saying, Dan, is thinking away and contrary to what may be. Public. Which has also been your mantra in the stock market. So, uh, you know, Danny, thanks for sharing that with you us. You got it. All right. Well, listen, you're listening to On the Tape. This is Dan Nathan. I'm joined by Danny Moses. Guy Adami is taking a few days off. He deserves it, don't you Where think is so, he? Danny? I want to know where he is. He's, he's in an undisclosed location out <laughs> west, okay? So okay. you guys will not hear from him. He will be off the Twitter, off our podcast feed. You know what the beauty? He doesn't listen to podcasts. So we can say anything about him. It won't. Not. He won't know anything. Anything, so. But he does live tweet his life when he's connected to the world. So he would see people tweeting about it. All right. So we have a packed show for you today. Stocks are at record highs. Big tech is breaking out. Tesla has been on a massive run. And there's all this talk about hyperflation. Oh, 
And if it's kind of a little meta, Facebook changed their name. That's a little bit of a hint. So we'll break all that down. And later we go off the tape with Stacey Cunningham, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. All right, Danny, let's get into it. It was a big week. What are we like 50% through S&P earnings right now? We've already started. We started off the week with Facebook. We had Tesla. Then we had Microsoft and the Alphabet. Both are just raging to new all-time highs here. By the time you listen to this, we will have... Amazon, and we will have Apple. So if we have Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, all making new highs, you have an S&P 500 at new highs, you have the NASDAQ finally confirming the new highs in the S&P 500. What does that mean to you, Danny Moses? It means the market's on solid footing, I guess, for the time being. It means that nothing matters right now outside of that. And it means that fundamentals matter for the most part. And that's a healthy thing in the market. You can make an argument on Microsoft. What an incredible platform they've built of software and recurring revenue and subscription model and the cloud and everything and 35 times earnings. So it's hard to short something just on valuation. You need to short something when you think fundamentals are breaking. And those names you've just mentioned, with the exception of the one we'll talk about in a minute, fundamentals are accelerating and are, and are really good. So it's hard to, you don't want to stand in front of that. And yes, it does make up. And you know, the whole market seems to be lifting off of it and it's much healthier than it was a week or two. Well, to your point about fundamental shifting, and we know that you and I have been in this business for a long time, and there's certain things that growth investors just look at when you see margins kind of declining for the first time in a very long time. Peak margins is kind of that sell signal, especially for growth companies. And, you know, last week we had that Snapchat miss. I mean, Snapchat, that went down 25% in like one fell swoop, which was kind of interesting. We saw Robin Hood. It looked like, I don't even know if there are fundamentals there. I mean, that thing is just- um, well, we, well, so we, we should talk about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about it. But, but again, you know, immediately marked down 10% trading at a new all-time low from its direct listing price just from a few months ago. Listen, I, th- I think you just said it best. The companies that are missing are getting punished. If you're missing in this environment, there was a reason. Yes, you might get a free pass on a supply chain issue or something that may be deemed transitory, hate that word, temporary, and you get, and you get a reprieve. But your stock's getting hit pretty hard here if you miss here. So, you know, it's all about communication. A lot of these companies had already either, when they reported second quarter and they gave third quarter guidance, I think 82% of companies are beating, I think is something like the number. They These are smart companies. They're not stupid. They're here for the long term. They gave guidance that they knew that, that they could beat and the business did fine. So they should get rewarded for it. I don't disagree. And it's becoming evident with all the shit going on around the globe that the sexiest game in town is the S&P 500, and it stays that way. No doubt about it. My buddy Timmy, who listens to the podcast, Spoos and Twos, that's what Timmy just says, keep loading up on both, and he's been saying that for years. That makes a lot of sense. It's funny, though. It feels like the earnings season has taken a slightly different tone. We started out with financial stocks, bank stocks. They were trading very near all-time highs, and actually rates were higher than where they are now, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But you know, bank stocks dipped after the earnings. I think expectations were high because the price of the stocks were high. It's not like the expectations for their fundamentals were so high. And so this rate move is kind of interesting because you would have thought that they would have gotten hit kind of hard here, but they're hanging out. They're hanging in there. Yeah. They're not grossly expensive. They really never have been. Yes, they can get to 2X of book, but with the ROEs, return on equity that they have in these companies, you can validate that. And if people think the cycle is going to keep going, which means M&A is going to keep going, which means IPOs will keep going, they'll get the benefit of the doubt. But you did see like a cap one that had higher expenses get hit really hard. I thought the interesting thing was, you know, last week, American Express had a great quarter. It just backed up the point that the wealthy are doing very well. Look at the spending at American Express of what they had. That's different than a cap one to a degree, right? That's a a little, and they all have their own intricate 
details of different parts of their business. Some are more exposed. Corporate travel coming back, that's going to be a huge boon for American Express. I do think it's interesting, though, that Visa and MasterCard, which are facing tremendous pressure from some of these like fintech upstarts, whether it be Square and and some of the other people. Buy now, pay later. Right. So some of those transactions are going off of uh, MasterCard and Visa's rail. That's going to be a real problem. I think investors are starting to price into it. And and think about that, Danny, what you just said, Microsoft at 35 times. Visa and MasterCard trade at huge premiums to the broad market here too. And that's the other thing. I mean, listen, we can talk about valuation until we're blue in the face. No one cares about valuation until the market's selling off. The reason is always after the fact here. So let's talk about this. This kind of lit up the Twitter sphere earlier in the week. Jack Dorsey started the week, CEO of Square, of Twitter. He tweets, hyperinflation is going to change everything. It's happening. Now, here's the thing about Jack. He is a Bitcoin maximalist. He thinks that Bitcoin is going to be the native currency of the metaverse or whatever the newfound internet looks like going forward. And it was kind of interesting. There's some people who clap back at him very quickly. Kathy Wood, I know you're a big fan. She is the <laughs> leader of the ARK investment complex I here. Noah's ARK. Yeah. Oh, no, the ARK no, no, no. Oh, okay. But here, I, wa- I want to hear what you have to say yeah. about this because she said almost immediately, she said in 2008-09, when the Fed started quantitative easing, I thought the inflation would take off. I was wrong. Instead, velocity, the rate at which money turns over per year, declined, taking away its inflationary sting. Velocity is still falling. What's your take on this? Because this was there was a lot of people who kind of came at Jack kind of hard. They thought he was looking at it through the lens of maybe his two companies or the way he sees the world going forward. Most people, unless you're over the age of 60, 65, have never experienced any real inflation in this market as an adult, as a, as a spender of it, right? And so- Dorsey, Unless you live in Venezuela. Unless you, sorry. Yeah. I don't Most think, Americans. I think we have one listener in Venezuela, so yeah. the majority of people yeah. listening. Anyway, so they haven't experienced, so it feels like something more than it might end up being, right? There are parts of the inflation, yes, they're transitory. Supply chain will fix, but there are parts that aren't. And there is a secular shift that has occurred- This economy has now changed, maybe for the better, maybe for worse, but COVID has changed, I think, the way that consumers behave, and that can last a while. Not just the hoarding and buying stuff online and e-commerce and how people shop and how they travel. All that stuff has changed a little bit. So I guess what I'm not answering, what I'll answer in a second, I read further to Kathy Wood's comments and then went backwards. Kathy Wood made a comment that she lives in innovation. She thinks innovation longer term will always be deflationary by nature and, and things like that, right? She also says that everyone's focused on the immediate gratification of the stock market, that buybacks are a waste of money. You should be spending that money on innovation. Well, certain companies just aren't set up that way. Yeah, but you agree with that, don't you? Well, again, that's somewhat hypocritical, right? Focus. So that's not focusing on short-term gains by a company using their capital to what they believe. Maybe they think their stock is cheap. That's not innovative. You're not doing anything for the world of innovation, except what you're supposed to be doing is make money for your shareholders. Yeah, but CapEx, I mean, like you think about this, Danny, you look at the top holdings in our ARK Innovation Trust, they don't buy back their stock. None of those. But she is about immediate gratification because when she sees her stocks getting hit and she ends up owning 20, 30, 40% of a small cap name, is that the right thing to do is as a fiduciary, just buy a stock without... Any recognition yeah, of its, it's valuation, all in the docs, bro. I mean, like that, that's no, the thing. I'm, I mean, what you're asking me, to, you're asking me to qualify her opinion on something, right? Yeah. And I want to before I qualify her opinion on something, I don't want to say I just dis, want to discredit everything she represents, but I want to put that back in context because there are certain things that she said are absolutely true. Innovation does over time, whether that means that the, you need robots instead of people, and no, that's not inflation or whatever that might be. I don't disagree with that. I just think everybody is short-term focused right now. And I go back to this, Dan. 
To me, inflation, the sticky part of inflation is wage inflation. And that is not going away. That is getting worse. And you can turn around and argue to me that, well, it's going to be automated soon and you won't need people. Okay, I'll feed back on you. Well, that's going to cause a big rise in unemployment at some point. We got to look over the next kind of, not one quarter, two, three, four quarters right now. And I think companies can adjust, the ones that are getting rewarded for in the stock market and the ones that don't. But I'll go back to this again. We have not seen People are like, where is it? How come it's not showing up? It's just now seeping in. This is, it's only been inflationary. Really. So it took a black swan. It took a it, pandemic, a global pandemic to do it. And it's going to change the whole financial no, future it, of the world. No, but Dan, here's what it did do. We pumped in trillions of dollars. We did PPP loans. We did all these loans. There are companies that are rolling in dough. I'm talking about small and mid-sized businesses. Forget about the public companies. There's a lot of money out there right now. And there is a huge wealth effect that has gone on. This money is finding its way through. So you want to talk about money velocity, how that's measured. It may be measured correctly, maybe measured incorrectly, but the Fed's coming. And so the Fed's going to come here and they're going to start raising rates. I want to see how this market behaves when they actually have to react to something that's real, not fiction. And when I say fiction, inflation's not fiction, it's here, but it hasn't really manifested itself yet in a lot of things. And I think it's on the come. Yeah. So anyway, leave it at that. And the last thing I'll say is about energy prices. I can't predict how quickly the adoption of, listen, I'm all about wind and solar. I think these are great things. Pretty woke. Those those take a long time again to seep in. So trying to predict where, listen, the market's rallying because oil stopped going up, right? It's 80, the 10-year yield stopped going up. So so So, And the dollar stopped going up. And the dollar stopped going. Deep breath. We talked about this last week and that's, you know, excuse to buy the market. I think it's interesting. By the time you guys are listening to this, we're going to have Amazon and Apple's results out tonight. And I think it's really, it's almost a tale of two cities in a way, what we saw from Microsoft and Google early in the week, and what we might see from Amazon and Apple, which have much greater susceptibility to, to kind of be impacted by Great some point. of it. So yep. it's kind of like bits versus atoms here. And, I, and so next week, we will cover all of that. All right, Danny, we got to hit this GDP print, Q3. We've been talking about it a lot, okay? It started, I think, a lot of economists and strategists had high single digits for Q3, okay, at the start of the quarter. They just printed 2%. Delta variant is obviously all over all the headlines about it. At the end of the day, you tell me, are we going to get that back in Q4? Are we going to get it back in Q1 2022? I find it very interesting when you think about this kind of intersection between growth and prices rising here. If you go back and you look pre-pandemic, back to your black swan that you just mentioned that you think changes the whole financial future of the globe here, well, the way um, we operate. I mean, okay. that's what it sounded like. Well, um, you know, the average though, Danny, <laughs> in a very accommodative global monetary sort of system, the average GDP in the US was 2.2% in the 10 years prior to this black swan pandemic event. So we're going back to 2%. I'm just telling you, as far as growth is concerned, okay, that's kind of the baseline. And then if you think that in Inflation is going to stay high. You know, pre-pandemic, the Fed was most worried about deflation. Again, I know that you introduced this idea, I swear, before almost any pundit, before any strategist was kind of talking about it. It really started later this summer. You were talking about it earlier. The notion of stagflation is a really dangerous situation for equity values, correct? Yes. If you have a bullish hat on, you could explain away in a good way this GDP print. You can say, all right, that was associated with the blip in Delta, and it's now coming down. We're going to get reaccelerated growth. But it actually, what it does for the bullish investor is it makes the Fed maybe think a little bit differently about hammering growth near term. Secondly, people believe, if people believe that inflation is transitory, and we can talk about that, but until we're blue in the face, they may think, wow, this is the perfect thing for me. This is exactly what we're looking for. Do I think growth is going to reaccelerate in Q4? I do. 
I think it should reaccelerate in Q4. So into do the rates go higher in that environment? Because that's one of the things I think is really hard to kind of get your 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 arms around. Here's here. the problem. Here's the problem. And I said this a couple of weeks ago. I would not gauge growth necessary to the 10-year yield. And I'll tell you why. Because I believe that people will start to pull forward what it means if the economy really starts to accelerate again and what that will mean. People, so now, as of we sit here right now, I think there's three Fed rate hikes that are being priced into the Fed fund futures market. More like 2.8. Cause it, yeah, like, but it's not, well, hold but on. 2023, not no, even no, 2022. Nope, nope, 22. It just got pulled forward. Starting in June, then October, and then December. Hold on. Yeah, no, but it's not the dot plot. These are market participants that are making it, not the Fed. My, my point is this, Dan. People jumped ahead on that, right? And now maybe they back it up. My point is this. I think everyone believes that a sustained Fed rate hike cycle will make the economy slow over time, right? It will, and I'm not saying that's why we're going to have an inverted yield curve. I'm not saying, but I think part of the flattener that's been going on right now, this could be technical reasons of auctions and not enough supply and shortage and things like that. Just watch that curve. So I don't necessarily think, to your point, Dan, that 2 or 2.2% could happen. I think we actually may have a situation where the two-year goes to 75 basis points and the 10-year starts to approach one. Again, I'm not saying that's happening anytime yeah. soon. And, and what does that mean? Forget about what it means for financial stocks. It's a disaster for well, growth expectations. I mean, like they think about right, that. So I'm more yeah. concerned. So if you're asking me, hey, Danny, you woke up and the 10 years at 2% or you woke up and it's at 1.25%, right? So right now, let's say drop 25 or up, up 40 or 50. Yeah. I would tell you the stock market got hit more by the fact that it went to 1.25%. That would be- well, uh, I, I agree. Believe, you okay? and I are in the same so, camp. Yeah. So I don't watch the tenure. Is that for that reason? So you've been really good uh, prognosticator on the NFL here. I'm just going to have a, given I'm, my pick. I'm, I'm going to make I'll... a prediction right here. I think that in the not so distant future, we are going to have such a, a glut of just the very goods that we are like complaining about that we can't get. And it's going to be uh, commodities. It's going to be finished goods. It's going to be impo- I, I just think that, that that is going to be a problem that 2022 that we have here. And that might wait, be- hold on. You're, you're saying there'll be too much supply? Yes, I think there's going to be way too much supply of, of a lot of, of stuff. Well, well, think about semiconductors, for instance. Well, if you don't think these companies that are pining, fair. They're, they're, they have been double and triple ordering for like a year now, okay? So I, I just think- Well, that, uh, you, very fair on certain things because the lead times are so long. And once you start that process, you can't cut it off. You're going to produce. And semiconductors, historically, in a normal environment, have always been the greatest barometer, right? You can see what, what DRAM prices are doing and things like that. That was always kind of the lead of that. So I don't disagree with that. But then why that would happen would be growth expectations may have been too high in general for the economy. So that could come with something bad with it. Too. All right, let's shift here. We got a little wonky here. Sorry about that, people. We're going to get something that um, our producer, Amanda Diaz, said just flat out as we were kind of coming into the studio. She goes, this is fucking stupid. And I had never used the F word on here, but I agree with her right here. We're talking about Facebook changing its name to Meta. They, they This was telegraphed okay. a little bit. This was yeah. telegraphed. And, and Mark Zuckerberg will do anything and everything to kind of change the narrative away. I think we've been talking about yeah. this a little bit from the Facebook files. And, you know, there's been tons of leaks and there's going to be FTC probes and, and this goes on and on and on. Their focus is on the metaphor. Let me make one other prediction oh, right here. One other prediction. Do it. And I have a I have a cast next week that are coming on. This is going to be a little OK Computer podcast warm up here. I have Melton Demers from Corn Share. She's been on our, our pod. Yep. Packy McCormick, not boring. He's been on our pod. We have Jared Dicker from the Churning Group. He's JD. A, yeah, JD. Yeah. These guys, honestly, these guys are like, they're probably already living in the metaverse. We're going to we're gonna do an episode. It's WTF is the, uh, the metaverse. Okay. So tune in next week. That's going to be excellent. But this announcement today by Facebook and Zuckerberg. Is there a little sleight of hand? What's going on here, Danny? What I'm going to channel my guy, Adami. All right, go for it. Here. Dan, St. John's University. And I'm going to say, I have no idea what you're <laughs> talking about, guy. 
Ron Artest. Oh yeah, I remember him. Did he change? What did he change his name to in 2011? Oh, yes, he was the something world, Meta, Meta 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 World Peace Meta World Peace. Yeah, right, correct, he changed yeah. his name to Meta World Peace. Yeah, right, nice. And then in 2020, he changed his name back to Meta Sandiford Artest. But this is amazing. Know, Wait, so name Guy Adami also lives in your head because he lives in my head. Yeah, too. he yeah. lives in my head. All right, so then anyway, that's yeah. my channeling. Uh, yeah, whatever. Still the same company. Still trying to maybe transform and from being a social app to something more than just a social app that they're getting away from catering to teenage girls and hooking them on things versus, you know, where you're going to let people experience something that's incredible. You know, it's a marketing. Listen, it is what it is. Is, is it stupid? Yes. It doesn't really change anything except they're trying to rebrand themselves. It's hard to rebrand a company like that when you're, it's not like you're not known. So. Well, we have, there's a framework for this back in 2015 when uh, Google, it was called Google back then, they renamed Alphabet and they broke out a bunch of these different divisions. They really wanted investors to start thinking about them as different business lines. And I will tell you this, it kind of did work to some degree because I know a lot of analysts, a lot of investors who follow the company, they think about it as, oh, well, they have seven different properties that have over a billion monthly active, you know, like that. So it does help in that regard. I actually think Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are the problem here. You know, they just don't do a great job of addressing some of these issues that this company has seriously been, they've been just tripping over themselves for almost five years now th since the 2016 election. So I, I guess, and, and we've talked about this a lot, Guy says it all the time. He thinks that ultimately it's going to fall into ESG sort of like focus. That may or may not happen. It'll happen longer than most people think. It's I mean, not going to be longer. the stockholders that determine the future of this company. It's the consumer and the users of it. And if it becomes self-fulfilling that people are fed up with it, that they don't want to be on the platform, stock's going to suffer. That's it. And are there going to be more fines and more things that they need to fix? Yes. Um, is it big tobacco-esque? A little bit, you know, certainly is no like that. It. And, you know, they changed their name too. Remember Philip Morris to Altria, right? So anyway, there's, <laughs> there's always name changes in bad industries that people want you to forget. What was uh, yeah, but what's different here is yeah. about a third of the world logs on to one of their properties every day. Yeah, you can't and, avoid and, it. Yeah. yeah, and so I mean, I guess I would say this, and I said this on Fast Money the other night. I mean, I, I started out by saying you couldn't write this stuff, and I said actually they have written this stuff. There's been lots of sci-fi movies and shows and books and stuff written over the last few decades where they have some evil overlord of the metaverse. Uh, Ready Player One was a, one of them. Uh, Snow Crash is a very famous novel that a lot of tech people think very fondly of Mark Zuckerberg will not be the overlord of the uh, you know of the metaverse it's just not going to happen and i think that's if, fair and if their current users are just not in tune if they're ahead of themselves a little bit i think they actually run the risk danny so you said it's consumers leaving here's the thing the lifeblood of their advertising product is actually small and medium sized businesses it's not mega cap businesses it's not those huge consumer product guys or anything like that so if some of those advertisers start seeing a somewhat of a disconnect between the users and what their users are there for. Correct. Um, you know, to me, listen, they've made mistakes in hardware. They've launched a numerous amount of hardware products over the years. Oculus was, I don't think, particularly important. I know that that's one way to kind of have better monetize this and accelerate this behavior. But to me, I think it's a bunch of uh, smoke and mirrors here, and I'm not down with it. I'm, I'm with Amanda. Right. I'm, I'm with Amanda here. Well, hopefully these predictions that you're giving are better than your football picks. So no, we're going to get to that. All right. We're going to get to that. All right. Cool. We talked about the big uh, technology breakouts to new all-time highs. I, I, the, the move in Tesla, Danny, I mean, this week. So, Oh, know, is that is that public? Yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. So Guy Dami was calling for 900. He was. Okay. He's been calling for 900 since it was like 650. All right. And the stock had this massive run. It was as low as 550. 
1150 in May. I think right now it's ticking a few ticks below 1100 here. So it blew through that prior all-time high. It continues to go here. People like the margins. They, they like everything about the quarter. I mean, so so what are we doing here, Danny, with this? There's so much more to that. How about this? Let's think of Tesla right now as a private company, not as public. Therefore, it takes all of the kind of noise of the stock activity away a little bit, right? What would it be worth if it went public right now? I know this is not a question, but what do you think a company like that would be worth if it was going public right now? It certainly wouldn't be near a trillion dollars. I don't know what the number would be, but it wouldn't be. But because it's public, we'll go back to it being public again, it's going to move incrementally based on where it's been in various things. But Dan, you're an options guy. I mean, the freaking name of the company is risk reversal, okay? Yeah. I want you to explain the premium that's been spent. We are in the billions of dollars a day being spent on this company. More premium on options than in stock volume dollars that are being traded on this company, okay? It's absolutely insane. So as someone figured something out, and a lot of these expire worthless, by the way, it's literally painting the tape, as we used to say, right? It's literally painting the tape. Can you explain to me, explain to the listeners out there that there is a, for every buyer, there's a seller. Yeah. For every market maker in an option that wants to take this on, they have to do something called Delta hedging, go out and buy the stock. Has someone figured something out that can manipulate, forget about, I'm not talking about Tesla's accounting or anything like that. That's a whole nother aspect. That's a whole nother conversation. Figured something out where they figured out a some type of equation or recipe to make this self-fulfilling and work. And by the way, if it's coordinated or not, or who's in, every time there's been bad news in Tesla or something come out, you see a lot of call option activity. And again, with the exception of this week, which some of these have gone in, into the money, but even today, 1,100 strikes, 1,200 strikes, 13, they expire tomorrow, Dan. So explain, and this is not open interest. So anyway, I want to get your thoughts on that. And then I want to go back. Yeah. So listen, the, 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 what's obvious is not only a stock market frenzy, it's an options frenzy. I don't think there's any funny business going on. If you go back to earlier in this week, Monday and Tuesday. So this was like days after they had already reported one in two options in single stock option land was a Tesla option. So I think it's, this is retail, man. And they see this is it thing. Though? Is it though, Dan? Because they don't, they can't identify where all these trades are obviously coming from. They're yeah. not. So again, sorry, I didn't mean to well, no, but, but what I'm saying is it's a retail frenzy. We saw this, remember last um, August, 2020, when there was the the stories of the the, the soft bank whale, they were buying all those out of the yes. money calls and yes. some of the biggest names in the market. What also happened was it, it created a retail frenzy too. I mean, so- but, Okay, but you know why they did it? And basically admit- Because they, they were trying, yeah, they were trying to rip the price of those stocks. Exactly. They're trying to rip the price. It's a zero sum game, but someone wants- But to that's not illegal. If you own a stock yeah. and you're buying a lot of calls, okay. I mean, you're unless still, you, you're putting money at risk. Okay. Unless we know who's, do, who's actually doing it. I have a question for you without insinuating anything. Sure. Why does Musk take out so much in margin loans? Where's that money? Why does, why does he need to borrow so much of his net worth of his stock against it? Why? Well, he doesn't take any income supposedly. So, so he needs $150 billion to live. I mean, I'm just saying like how much, like he borrows hundreds of billions of dollars. You know that, well, right? Well, one like, thing I will say about Elon Musk is that for, for 10 years, every secondary offering that they did between stocks and converts, he bought on them. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a fact. I mean, that happened. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I get it. What, so what are you trying right. to say? Is there something nefarious going on here? I don't know. But let me let me just say this. This is what bothered me most this week. Forget about the bullshit announcement and the Hertz. And by the way, good on Hertz for getting Tom Brady. That was probably the best piece of real news that came out as a, as a spokesman for the company and the whole Carvana and this whole thing, right? But let's think about this for a second. So you have the NTSB the NHTSA and the FTC, which are kind of, forget about the SEC and the DOJ doing nothing to Tesla. Let's just talk about those three agencies. They're there to protect the consumer from fraud and basically bad products, right? Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Why does Tesla still have the ability to even offer beta testing 
of autonomous driving. They call it what they want. They, they pretended it to be full self-driving years ago and people pay for it. That's on the consumer for being an idiot for believing that it actually Correct. Works. To send updates to beta users in a multi-thousand pound vehicle that's on the road that doesn't just potentially pose harm to the driver, but to other people on the road is insane. Why has the government done nothing to stop or do it? They send letters. Tesla doesn't respond to any of them. They send letters. That to me is more upsetting, not just as I'm not short it, but not just as looking at the stock market person, but as the product itself. If, if he owned an airline and it was Musk Airlines, right? And it was the coolest airline. It was the new Richard Branson Virgin. Like it did everything cool. The thing could fly when it wanted to 900 miles an hour. And then when there was no wind, it would glide and all, it had all these updates on it. And you wanted to fly on the airline because you thought it was the coolest plane in the world. Would you be comfortable on that plane if there were uploads going into the system to the pilot while he was flying it that may alter or change what the pilot may or might not see in the sky? If I was a Boeing shareholder and you asked me that question four years ago, I actually would have been very happy because they could have used some, okay, some good upgraded point. software on, okay, on those 737 no, Maxes, Danny. Because the FAA is there to protect you. Yeah. My, my point is this. like. This, oh, we uploaded this. Well, they did. They had two planes that crashed and 380 okay. people died. Yeah, and look what happened to it. The government cracked down. The CEO lost his job. They, they're trying to fix so, it. So the former COO is the CEO now. My, my point is this, Dan. There's the stock price, and then there's doing right by, by a product that's out that the consumer is using. People can love the product. I can't change people's opinion. Great. They may not be the best made product, but they're cool. Sure. Yeah. It's great. EV, so is this oh, a is little it, rot? Are we are we ripping yeah, off you know the tape what? right here? Is that I'm what's rotting, going on here? I'm rotting at the gut. So what are you pissed off about? I'm pissed so you're off. Not pissed at, off at Musk. Well, are I'll always pi- be pissed off at Musk. Okay, but, but you're pissed off. You think the regulators are not doing, doing their enough. job with full full self driving? I and, think and literally. Yes. I first of all, the FTC, the Federal Trade. How many people have died using their? Uh, I don't know. Self driving. We'll never know. But over ten, you know, over ten. How many people die a day? Dan, don't Dan, Dan, Dan. This is something that don't. I wish Guy was here. God, I wish Guy was here. Don't go there. I'm, I'm making a point of, we had people report over the weekend when their software got re-uploaded that yeah. their car just stopped in yeah. the middle of the highway. Yeah. Okay. Those are the times. How that, it's even possible for something like that to happen. Remember the whole thing with airbags? It literally put yeah. Takeda, or I can't remember the name of the Yeah, company. it did. There was, a, there was okay. a situation with Ford like 25 years ago, right? What you do yeah. is yeah. You, you have a recall, you replace. They have outstanding recalls, Dan, which they've yet to address anyway. I'm not that my my. So what rod, do you do? So what what is it? What do you do with a stock? It's I don't a trillion know, dollar it's, market it's cap joke. here. It's really hard. I mean, but but we've never seen a joke. We're seeing it's not jokes. a joke. No, I know, but, but yeah, but, yeah. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. It's a trillion dollar market cap. Yeah, and you can't any of the other stocks that are above a trillion dollars have have much stronger. Yeah. footing. this is still all on the come to to sustain valuation. By the way, Ford great quarter, yeah. right? Sixty billion market cap, sixty five billion market cap. Producing will be producing, I think fifty percent or maybe twenty five to forty percent of same amount of electric vehicles in two years that Tesla is. They'll, they're catching up. So Jim Cramer actually had an interesting yeah. comment this morning. He said, commenting on the Ford quarter, he said the people that he talks to at Ford are getting really sick of the jokes that are being made that Tesla's gains today are equal to. Ford's market cap. So they're going to get a lot more forward about articulating their plans in EV, that sort of thing. And they have done that. And the stock has appreciated a great deal. I will say one thing about Tesla right now, Danny, the stock prices we're recording this right now is 1,071. And I think it's really interesting. It's market cap is 1 trillion and 74 million dollars. Okay. So like if we're doing some math here, I think the beauty of having 1 billion shares outstanding. Yeah. 
and the price yeah. being a multiple of the market cap. I think that's where we're going. I that, think it's really cool. So I, I think that's cool. That must justify the value. You know what? I'm wrong. That thing. I think it's going to two trillion. Why not? So we were talking about these mega cap names earlier, Danny. And what's really interesting when you think about this this trillion dollar club, you think that Andrew Jassy just took over for Jeff Bezos. He was the only CEO prior to that. We People know. that know him call him Andy, but yeah, yeah okay, okay. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And, okay. I mean, I'm just being a little formal here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we know that Tim Cook took over for yeah. Steve Jobs, founder there, ten years ago. And then we know Satya Nadella took over for Balmer, who took over for Gates. And then the last one is Sundar Pichai. So it's so pretty interesting. Okay. I think Andrew Jazzy, I think for all those people who are kind of down on Amazon right now, and I have been on just price and some of the recent results, that sort of thing. Andrew Jassy is going to put his stamp on this company. And I think it's probably going to have a run not too dissimilar than some of those other companies we just mentioned. But Tesla is really interesting. We had an analyst on our show on Fast Money earlier in the week or last week talking about SpaceX. And you were just saying, if Tesla was a private company. What do you think it'd be valued at? SpaceX has a hundred billion dollar valuation. SpaceX's TAM is kind of infinite when you think about it. Ooh, Dan, okay? that was good. No, yeah. but but it is. If you space think about is it, infinite. You know, okay, you Dan. saw what I did there. Oh my All right, God. but the question I have for guy, you, guy, come back. I, yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah, guy, come back. Yeah. The, the question I have for you is, how long is Elon Musk going to be the CEO of Tesla? He's already won. It's over. He, why, why wouldn't you just kind of hand this off to somebody who actually? could oversee the manufacturing of millions of cars in a year and then go figure out how to get to Mars. Well, he wasn't on the last conference call, Musk, which he said he wasn't going to be. Because why would you want to, why would a CEO be on a call of a trillion dollars? Well, he's trading Doji. Yeah, I don't think it's important. Yeah, whatever. So I think he's laying the groundwork to do it. We talked about before that his penalty of time being unable to be chairman is now over. He can be chairman again. So I do think it's possible that he leaves. What happens to the stock? I don't know. I'm not even going to try to guess on this. Yeah. All right. So my friend Carter Braxton Worth, he looked at that chart this morning when we were chatting. Mm -hmm. That breakout of 900, that should serve as massive technical support. Wonderful. uh, I'm just telling you. So, I mean, people are going to buy it two hands. All right. Let's move on. We got one last topic here before we get out of here and before we get to Stacey Cunningham, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Stick around for that. That's a great conversation. Question I have for you. Spotify, Danny, they had a big quarter this week. They are kicking the snot out of some of their competitors in podcasting. But the question I have for you, they have acquired a lot of these shows. They have the Barack Obama, Bruce Springsteen, Renegades. They bought The Ringer for, I think, a couple hundred million dollars. Bill Simmons, that's a great organization over there. But they also bought the Joe Rogan experience. And do they have a Joe Rogan problem? You know, the guy seems to just kind of step in it, or maybe he's doing it by design. It's as a, kind of a bit of a shock jock sort of thing. Amanda reminded me, like, thinking about serious XM back in 05 when they inked that deal with Howard Stern. There was some trepidation. I think what's interesting about a brand like Spotify is that they don't have a CEO who is that prolific, if you will. You know what I mean? That well-known. They're basically, he is the most widely followed spokesman of that company. And he often says some very controversial things. And especially as we know in this culture that we're in right now, I think last week he made some comments about Pete Buttigieg taking some uh, parental leave, um, because he and his husband just adopted a baby. You know, before that, he's chugging down horse dewormers and, you know, an anti-vax. So does Spotify have a Joe Rogan problem? Let's go back to 2004 or five when Howard Stern signed the deal with Sirius, right? If you imagine him doing that, Howard Stern is, has said some outlandish things in his past. We either agree with him or not, whether you want to agree with him more than Rogan or not. Netflix kind of paved the way for this. Let's go spend a lot of money on content and do stuff. And then we know that the 
right now the growth rate in podcasts in general, because anyone can do one, just speak to us. Yeah. About it. You know, anyone, like can, us. anyone can do one is growing as a segment of the, you know, for advertising and so forth. So they're getting the benefit of the doubt right now. Let's go back to the, when Netflix, everything changed for Netflix, everything changed with house of cards. That was the seminal moment for Netflix. That was the kind of the first original content. Let's put Kevin Spacey aside. Speaking of the woke moment, put him aside for a second, right? If you had said at that moment, do they have, do they have a Kevin Spacey problem? Meaning if there had not been a lot else, it was, you would have said probably yes. But since then, what has happened, right? Since then, Netflix has gone on to buy Tremendous in Town. I get, I'm going to guess that Spotify, to your point, how prolific this CEO is going to turn out to be. I don't know. I haven't looked at the balance sheet close enough to make a comment. I'm just saying in general, I think right now as a category, the benefit of the doubt is going to go to this growing sector. But as soon as, to your point, that stuff, oh, Joe Rogan as your main anchor guy, will matter if the macro starts to change or the economics start to change in podcasts in general. Well, so. it's it's funny. I mean, they spent a lot of money acquiring some of these this content and some of these personalities. And my only point very specifically is that what Joe Rogan speaks, he's basically speaking for Spotify for all intents and purposes. And the other thing I would say on a competitive standpoint, because the headline was is that they're overtaking Apple. Let me just tell you this about Apple. Did you watch the Emmys a couple weeks ago, Danny? Did you see what Ted Lasso did? I mean, they've been really- Oh, I can't. Well, well they, right. they've been really careful about the content that they've acquired man they just like swept the emmys you know ted lasso just destroyed it i think if they set their sights on podcasting i think it's all over i mean i, oh, I just I mean, don't think you know i mean fair. Yeah, yeah so so my, my point is is like i think they have a joe rogan problem i don't think that guy gets better from here i don't think you can kind of put a muzzle on him and i think the competition is coming so i'll just leave it at that that's a little meta hold on is that where guy adami's out right now at maybe. apple studios maybe. getting his own freaking podcast maybe. i knew he'd leave us maybe yeah, go ahead no but i i do think that when we set out to start risk social media we were thinking about what the ringer was doing we we're thinking about what pod save america was doing and they went after these verticals and they were doing it it was personality led and they were doing it in a way that kind of you know, other mediums don't allow for it in a way so I, I you know i think this this medium is here to stay um i'm excited to be in it i hope you're excited to be in it other than you saying that any old chamoli well i'm it. just saying <laughs> you know a uh, microphone in a dream all right dan nfl pick all right let's can do we it. do this right now yeah, let's i'm gonna out. do this yep i'm gonna name five games that i like fine Okay, you can pick one of those five, and then I'm going to give you what my top pick is against it. Okay, yep. ready? Here are the five. And these aren't five picks. These are the games that I like because I need to keep my record intact. I like the Steelers getting three and a half in Cleveland. You want to pass on that? Keep going. Okay. I like the Pats getting five and a half against the LA Chargers. I like the Patriots. Okay. Denver at home laying three against the Washington football team. I like Denver. Dallas on Sunday Night Football laying one at Minnesota. I like Dallas. And last but not least, Monday Night Football. Yes, guy, F you. I like the Chiefs laying nine and a half against the Giants and the Kansas City's at home. So those are my picks. I'll let you pick one of those against me, and then I'm going to tell you what my favorite pick is of the week. All right, I'm going to take the Chargers minus five and a half at home. All right, so I'm taking the Patriots, who were good to me last week. All right, I'm taking the Patriots. I do like that one, so I'll take the patch. You can count that as one of my picks. That's, that's fine. So I believe the Denver Broncos will cover the three-point spread at home against the Washington football team this week. They're getting healthier. I think Von Miller's coming back. I think the Washington football team stinks. They're one and six against the spread. They're playing in the altitude in Denver. Bridgewater's healthier. They're getting some receivers back. I'll take Denver minus three. That's my pick. All right? There you go. There you have it. All right, people, stay tuned. We have Stacey Cunningham, the president of New York Stock Exchange, when we come back. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts 
with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Stacey Cunningham is president of NYSE Group, which includes the New York Stock Exchange, the world's largest equity exchange and premier venue for capital raising. She is the New York Stock Exchange 67th president and the first woman to lead the exchange in its 229-year history. In her role, Cunningham oversees an organization that is home to 2,400 of the world's largest, most influential, and most innovative companies. In addition to the NYSE, she oversees four other equity exchanges with nearly $4 trillion of listed exchange-traded fund assets under management and two equity options exchanges. Cunningham began her career as a trader on the NYSE trading floor and held several senior positions at global exchanges prior to becoming NYSE president. Stacey Cunningham, it's our pleasure to have you on the tape. Well, I hope you heard your bio, and I've long been a fan. Stacey Cunningham, welcome to On the Tape. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to, to be here, and, and hopefully one day we'll be doing things in person again. Absolutely. So not to bore you, Stacey, in the fall of 1960, five women walked into the auditorium at Fordham University's law school filled with men, and the person running the meeting, the orientation, looked around the room, picked out the five women, and said, I'm not sure why you're here. You may meet your future husband, but you won't get a law degree. Well, in terms of my mother, he was half right because she did meet her future husband, my father. She also got a law degree, as the other four women did as well. I bring that up because I totally understand what it's like to be a woman in a predominantly man's world. And you have reached levels where when you were back at Lehigh, my sense is you didn't think you'd get to. Maybe you aspired to it, but in your wildest dreams in this world, you probably didn't think you'd be running effectively the largest exchange in the world. Well, you're right. I didn't think it, but not because I thought I could, and I just didn't think about it. It never occurred to me that being a woman would have an impact on what I could do. And I was lucky that that was my mindset, but I didn't really think about it. I mean, I was at Lehigh in engineering. It was male-dominated in every single class I walked into, and I didn't give it much thought. But what's really important is that I was fortunate that I could choose to enter this career in this industry without giving it thought because other people did. So because people who came before me broke down some of those barriers is the reason that I could go work on the trading floor as a summer intern in the early 90s and not have to think about whether or not I was allowed to be there as a woman. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned engineering because Lehigh is known for their engineering school. It's one of the top schools in the country for engineering. And obviously you go from that to the floor of an exchange where I was one of those meatheads, as they say, and it's anything but engineering centric. You must have said to yourself, what am I doing here? They're 50 years at least behind the times, and there are no straight lines in life. And I think at a certain point, maybe that lack of technological intervention got you frustrated. I actually think for a period of time, you went down the culinary route. Is that correct? I started working on the trading floor. I fell in love with finance and the markets and the pace. I mean, you know what it's like. You walk into a trading floor, you feel that energy and you feel the conversations and all the interactions with everybody. That won me over almost instantly. So I didn't expect to go into finance. It wasn't a conscious choice. Frankly, it was a summer job and I expected to go back to engineering. You are right though, that after a few years on the trading floor, 
it wasn't lost on me that the way technology was integrated into how we traded needed advancement. And that was something that I really wanted to see change and was one of the drivers to my leaving the NYC trading floor back in 2005. Culinary was a fun diversion. That was just a passion. I knew I wasn't doing that for a living, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. And I love to eat. (laughs) And so I just thought this will be a fun way to spend some time thinking about the next step for me. Not to get off the subject, but my daughter during COVID got me hooked on MasterChef. How far are you getting in terms of the MasterChef to the extent you've ever seen the show? Nowhere. I'm getting nowhere. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things that I think is pretty hysterical because a lot of the media articles will talk about you know my going off to pursue a career as a chef, and I never earned a living as a chef. And so my colleagues here all love to make fun of me that I'm a James Beard award-winning non-chef, which is obviously not true. So I would not get very far in MasterChef or any of the competitions that my extended family loves the idea of suggesting I enter. A lot's changed. I think the New York Stock Exchange, and you know this better than myself, 225-year, 230-year history. Lots changed. A lot stayed the same, but I'm sure there are things in your tenure that you're extraordinarily proud of. Can you speak to some of those things? A lot has changed, but we kept the things that matter the same. So our mission is to help companies raise money so they can go out and change the world. They literally change the way we live, work, and play every single day. We were talking about Twitter. We talk about all of the different ways that companies impact our lives. They're creating jobs along the way. They're creating opportunities for investors to share in that success. And the listeners to your show are doing that, right? They're looking for companies that are going to change their lives. So we've been doing that for 229 years since the very first days of this country's founding have been about providing an opportunity and creating opportunity here in the United States. And that stayed the same. How we do that has changed and continues to change and it evolves. And when we look at how companies are raising money, that's one thing that's been changing. The traditional IPO has been around for the past 40, 50 years. That's evolving. We're looking at companies opening up access to their first initial trades via direct listings and other opportunities. We're looking at products that we trade. The New York Stock Exchange in its earliest days was trading bonds. And that expanded to equities. We're now trading ETFs, options, all the different products that ETFs open up access to for regular investors so that they don't have to be the most sophisticated investors to have access to more sophisticated touch points like currency and Bitcoin and other things that are coming to market. So that will continue to evolve. And the way we support those companies as public companies will continue to evolve, but that mission is not changing. I started my career at Drexel Burnham on 60 Broad Street. So literally right down the block is the New York Stock Exchange. But I also was a commodities trader. So I never set foot on the floor until I think the early 90s. And I remember walking into that building. It's a magnificent building to the extent that our listeners have ever been. I encourage everybody to try to get in if they can, because it's a beautiful building. And Much has been made about the fact that it's going to turn into a museum and no need for human beings. Nothing, in my opinion, could be further from the truth. Can you speak to the importance of not only the building, but the people inside of the building? Absolutely. So one thing I'll say, first of all, on the building itself is we did take the opportunity during the pandemic when a lot of people were working remotely to continue to upgrade and restore some of the parts of the building. So if you haven't been in recently, you should come back because it's even more magnificent than it was before. With respect to the trading floor, we're committed to the trading floor because it provides unique value. We actually had a really interesting experiment for the nine weeks that the exchange was closed, where the trading floor was closed, but trading was continuing. 
we could look at that data and really see what is the value that the trading floor itself provides. And there was actually an academic study that was run and showed that volumes were declined around the auctions. Their spreads were widened out. It cost investors to have that trading floor closed. And there are a couple of reasons why. One thing that's really unique about the New York Stock Exchange is every company that's listed on the NYSE has a market maker who's responsible for overseeing trading in that stock. And they have obligations above and beyond all of the other market makers that are out there in the world. And even the same firms who trade on every exchange are trading differently on the New York Stock Exchange because of the rules we put on them. So those people on the trading floor are human beings there watching the whole process, but they're also using algorithms to trade and they're very technologically sophisticated firms. That combination and that integration of people and technology is really the secret sauce to why stocks trade better on the NYSE. And so we are absolutely committed to the floor. And then all of the brokers on our floor that are agency representatives for their institutional orders, they're a massive part and particularly around the auctions, which are the largest trading event in the world. And that floor community really is bringing together during the most complex times, their most significant value. So we're committed to it. It's also a great marketing tool. So yes, we definitely use that for our listed companies to get their message out there when they have a story to tell. So we highlight them on not just their IPO day, but every time they're doing something new and exciting, we're certainly going to use our brand and our platform to amplify that message. And there's no better place to do it than from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I couldn't disagree at all. When you see any company, whether it be going public, which to that point in time is the most significant corporate event that they will have, and it will be an image that will be plastered on their walls of their offices forever. The human aspect of it, I think, is a massive differentiator. And it brings me back, Stacey, my first two weeks in the business, I started at a hedge fund in Stanford, Connecticut. And you know what they did the first day? I saw my seat there and they said, hey, kid, tomorrow you're going down to the New York Stock Exchange and you're going to run around with our brokers for two weeks. Okay. For two weeks. And I was just absolutely dumbfounded by how difficult it was to do that job, shadowing a floor broker. I was in the main room and then I would go to the garage. Then we'd be running to the blue room. And back then they did not have handhelds, right? So they were running to a booth and then they had to get back and relay the orders and the change of the markets and this. And it was just really fascinating. It was pretty magical. And I hadn't been back in years and years. And I will tell you this, that I went back there. It was probably early March, 2020. I was doing the closing bell right before the floor shut down for that short spell or whatever. And I bumped into a broker that I had done business with 25 years earlier, a guy named JP. And he's a little grayer. I'm a little grayer. My parents happened to be down with me and my parents were dying to come down and they were down with me that week. And when we walked away after talking to JP for about 10 minutes, he said, Hey, Danny, go, go. Great to see you. And I was like, what? And I forgot that they had nicknamed me. I used to sit up there in Stanford and I'd say, Hey, go buy me 15,000 IBM at 101 and a half. And I'd say, go, go like that. And so I was like, literally Danny Gogo for years and years and years. And to me, like that is that place will always have a dear and dear place to my heart. We have long memories on the trading floor. So nicknames last forever. But you, so you were there March, 2020. That was a really interesting time on the trading floor, obviously given all the volatility in the markets. And that also was a great time to really see the value of the human element too. I don't know if you remember, but it may have been on March 20th. It was right around then that President Trump had announced at 3.59 PM that he was going to have the oil reserves filled. And so the oil stocks took off with massive buy imbalances. But because it was four o'clock, 
nobody could enter sell orders because at that point in time, the gates come down and people can't enter orders. The human beings on the floor, though, said, hey, these stocks should not be closing up 700%. If sellers could come in, they would come in. And they applied human judgment, which gave us the ability to reopen the gates, let sellers come in, those stocks closed in line. That did not happen on other exchanges because of that human element and the people able to provide that human judgment. So that was a busy time of year. I'm really incredibly proud of everything everybody did on the floor during that time. Let me ask you a quick question about the human element, though. I'd love to hear how the New York Stock Exchange recruits, but how are the specialist firms recruiting in an industry that a lot of people think is going to be obsolete, maybe not five years from now, but 10, 15 years from now? It must be very difficult, I would imagine, to attract talent. Can you speak to that? Yeah. When you think about the role they're playing, that's certainly evolving. I mean, you talk about specialist firms. They're now designated market makers. They're part of massive trading firms that are trading in multiple asset classes, not just on the New York Stock Exchange trading floor. So when you think about what those companies are able to provide new employees and the different opportunities, it's really across the board. They're also developing relationships with companies. We have 2,400 of the world's largest companies listed on the NYSE. That's a really unique relationship that you can develop in that role. So people will come in and look for opportunities. You get an exposure you wouldn't get in a lot of other places, and that's a compelling offering. Certainly, recruiting, hiring, maintaining employees is a topic right now that we're all thinking about and facing, and largely because of the questions that the pandemic has posed to so many individuals as you're thinking about your next steps, and you've seen it and read it in every industry. Days the market's down 1,000 Dow points, which is not as meaningful as it was maybe 10 years ago. But the cover of the New York Times or Daily News will have those stock photos of typically the guys with their face in their hands. And the other side of that coin is on huge up days. They'll have the same dudes elated. Are those stock pictures that you guys provide? I mean, we got to update things, I would imagine, Stacey. There are a lot of pictures out there. And I think if everybody knows Peter Tuckman and his claim to fame is he's the most photographed broker on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And when you have a brand like ours, that's the positive and the negative. When any kind of news out, you'll see people protesting outside the New York Stock Exchange, any issue related to markets or not. And it's a great backdrop. So people use it. Yeah, I love those photos. I know a lot of those guys too. So I always get a kick out of it when I see on the cover of the journal or CNBC.com or something like that with a guy, they call it a face palm. That's what they call it. Okay. It's like a little emoji. I used to get annoyed though, when they would use old photos during the early days of the pandemic and they wouldn't have masks on. I was like, no, no, they're wearing masks on the trading floor right now. I'm like, don't send out photos that are old with no masks. <laughs> that's right. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned IPOs and you mentioned some of the innovation that's going on for companies to come to market on the NYSE. And you guys obviously have been really active in the direct listing space, early advocate. I know that an organization like yours who has these deep moats, you might push back on some sort of innovations like that, but it's also been SPACs, the amount of companies that have come public through that. Speak to me a little bit about how this has changed the landscape for the NYSC as you compete, obviously for IPOs, but your early embracing of the direct listing, what did that mean for your ability to win deals for the New York Stock Exchange? You always need to take a step back and think about what's changed and challenge the status quo. And one of the things that's changed is the primary driver for companies going public used to always be about raising capital. And that's not always the primary driver anymore. In fact, for a lot of companies, it's not because they can raise capital privately and they're going public because they want to get that currency and liquidity and they want the access and visibility that a public market brings. Because of that shift, if it's not about raising money, it led people to question how they go public. So Barry McCarthy, the CFO of Spotify, came to us in December of 2016. 
So just think about how long ago that was. And he said, hey, I have an idea. I'm just thinking about it. I don't want you to tell anybody about it. What do you think? And when he first described to me the concept of not raising capital and just having us price it, my first reaction was, oh, no, there are going to be a lot of a lot of banks that aren't going to like this idea if this is how this goes. It turned out there were some that didn't. And there were some that supported it pretty early on. And it took us a year and a half to work with Spotify and the SEC on getting it across the line. But if you're not thinking about how things ought to be working, given the circumstances that you have now, you're never going to continue to evolve and survive. And so we're always doing that. But you need to look at what are the things that we should stop doing and what can we change. And so direct listings is really interesting because it accomplishes two major things. It democratizes access to that opportunity. So it's not just a subset of investors that are getting in on that trade the night before when they get an allocation in an IPO. It's opening up that opening trade to all investors on a level playing field. So that democratization is a big driver of it. And that was really important to the CEO, Daniel Ek. The second part of it is its cost of capital. So if you're selling shares in an IPO and you watch it pop 100% the next day, everyone says, wow, it's a great IPO. That's fantastic. Unless you're the one that sold it the night before, then you don't really want to see it pop 100% the next day because, hey, I didn't get a great price. So that's what the CFO, Barry McCarthy, was trying to solve for is he doesn't mind paying the banks. It's not about hiring banks to be advisors in that role. And that's still part of a direct listing. Banks still play a really big role. It was that cost of capital at the market, really, with the benefit of multiple buyers and sellers coming together to establish price. Let's just let the markets do what they do best. And that was really exciting to me as a trader to understand, like, let the market get there. What we've seen in the direct listings to date is they've been the largest opening trades in our history, despite the fact they're not the largest companies that have gone public. So Spotify, Slack, they were both in the top five largest opening trades of all time, which is really interesting because it really is price discovery uninhibited. It's not artificially constrained. So that's been an interesting path for companies. We did file and innovate on that to say, well, what if they do want to raise money at the same time? Because really a direct listing decouples capital raising from going public. The SEC approved those rules, but we need a company like Spotify that's willing to sit there and talk to the SEC with us and get to a place where they can be the first one to take advantage of that. So that's been an interesting development. You mentioned SPACs too. I mean, SPACs have been around for a really long time. Frankly, they didn't meet the listing standards on the New York Stock Exchange because they were often a tool that was used for companies who couldn't go public another way. It was an alternate path to get there if you couldn't really do the traditional route. What we see now is a lot of really sophisticated experts in financial markets have been sponsors of SPACs. We have 500 SPACs out in the market now. I think it was time for a bit of a slowdown, a correction there. And, and so I think it's healthy that we're seeing a slowdown on that front, but there still are 500 companies looking for deals. So the good side is there'll be companies that will come to market earlier in their life cycle, which is important because we do want to see investors have access to those opportunities in the public markets. The downside is there will likely be some companies that really weren't ready for the public markets and that get out there. And so the point is customers and clients, companies and their investors, they all have choices now. And so they can just pick the path that makes the most sense for them. 
it's interesting to me that if you look back 20 years ago at the top of the dot-com cycle, I think since then we have through M&A, through companies going out of business, through a whole host of things. At one point in the last couple of years, we had half as many listed companies here in the US. And then all of a sudden now, you just mentioned there are 500 SPACs out there looking to take private companies public. And then you think of just regular way IPOs are doing really well right now. The market's at all-time highs. The interest rates are really low. It's a great time to raise capital in any which way you want to do it. Have you found as your business has transitioned a bit to this hybrid approach from humans on the floor, and you guys invested, I assume, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions in technology over the last few years. Have you found this to be the proper test of the way forward for the NYSE? Because it's probably like a perfect storm and it might be a good storm for all intents and purposes. We all work really hard throughout our careers. We focus on things that we know are important. Sometimes you can see the fruits of your work right away. Sometimes you can't. And so it was really rewarding to see in the peak of the market activity in 2020, the benefit of all our investments in technology. Our technology was designed to scale in all market conditions. And if you think about the busiest days we had prior to March 2020, our peak message day, and that's all the orders that come in to buy and sell and cancels and new prices. Those are all messages that come to the exchange. Our peak day was something like 110 billion messages. March 2020, that became 330 billion messages in a single day. So the fact that all of that technology just took it in stride was really exciting and rewarding to see. All of the things like market-wide circuit breakers, all of those things that you run tests, but you're not using them live To have to use all of those things live in 2020 and see it all really work well was critical. And then you look at the way this model's designed, direct listings, IPOs. We've had two direct listings, two IPOs, two SPACs all in one day at the same time, opening all at the same time. Our model is designed to handle complex situations. That's what the New York Stock Exchange does best. The more complicated it is, the more we shine. And so that's why we invest in all of the people and technology that we invest in. And so, yeah, it feels great when you see it work the way you want it to. Technology is important, but it's still a people business. And getting back to IPOs real quick, you mentioned Spotify. My sense is you're a Yankee fan. I'm hoping you are. If you're not, you can lie to me and say that you are. But obviously, they had the best closer in the history of baseball in Mariano Rivera. Great team, the same way you have a great team doing all your listings. How often do they come to you and say, Stacey, we needed to close this. And to the extent that that happens, is that something you stand at the ready to do? Because I know you have an extraordinarily busy day each and every day. Yeah, that happens pretty much every time. You know, it happens a lot, right? So a CEO bringing their company public, it's a big event for them, right? It's an emotional event. They're personally involved in that a lot of times. And they want to know that I care about this baby they're about to birth, right? And so I am definitely personally involved in those. Obviously, the team is great. And the team does a fantastic job leading up to that for, for you know, to, to those decisions. And I joke when I say all the time, but it does happen quite a lot. And it's a great moment then when you're celebrating with them later, that first milestone that you're celebrating together. My favorite are when companies come back to celebrate future milestones, but it's an exciting and it's an emotional day. So Stacey, let's talk a little bit about, I think it's been a phenomenon in 21, but it's not one that we haven't experienced in the past when retail catches a fervor for the stock market. It's good for everybody. There's a whole sequence of events that happens. And at first people are there, it's a bit of a FOMO and then people learn and then they figure out how they can kind of create wealth over a period of time if done properly. But one thing that we've spent a lot of time talking about is the backside of that is just the gamification of the stock market where people are doing this rather than, let's say, betting on football or going to the craps tables. 
volatility has clearly been exasperated this year at certain periods, especially in certain stocks, whether they be meme stocks or certain groups. How has that affected how you guys operate here? And how do you think about these sort of retail frenzies that we see? And we've seen them in some individual names, but we've also seen them in sectors. And we've also seen it at times in the markets when you consider valuations. How close of an eye do you guys keep on those sorts of trends? This is really core to why our markets work. They need to be a story of shared success. And so having retail participation in the market is a really good thing for the market. Making sure retail investors understand the risks and that we have investor protections, not just for retail investors, but for all investors, is critical to what we do every day and what we're thinking about balancing investor protections and investor access. Those two things are what we're focused on balancing on every issue. How do we make sure that we're not denying investors access to opportunity? by increasing the level of investor protections that we have. I think there's a defensive reaction very often when we talk about investor protection that some retail investors react negatively to. They feel like it's a paternalistic action and they don't want to be protected. They say, I understand the risks. I understand what we're doing. Why do you treat me like you need to take care of me? And there's a difference between when we say investor protection, we're talking about transparency. We're talking about a level playing field. We're talking about the rules that exist for all investors. It's not just about protecting the retail investor. The US markets are the most liquid in the world because we have the highest standards in the world, because we have more transparency. And so that's what we're focused on protecting. And even at the NYC, the companies listed on the NYC are the largest, most liquid companies because our standards are higher than any other exchange out there. And so I'm very protective of that narrative, right? And making sure it's not just because we've been around the longest, the large companies coming to market now want to meet those standards. Retail investors are not all the same, you know, just like you'd say all hedge funds. I mean, people will use these blanket terms saying the hedgies are doing this, retail investors are doing this. Retail investors are a mix of people. And some of them it's almost like there's a crowd phenomenon, and that's what we saw in some of the meme stocks. But they're also trading with institutional investors and with other retail investors. I mean, I get personal emails from people who say, I don't understand what happened in GameStop, and I just lost all this money I didn't even know I had at risk. And I have to be worried about those people too. Well, Stacey, you're making us feel a bit cheesy because our research, we went to Wikipedia and we found all this great stuff about you. And you obviously listened to our episode last week. We had the former Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and we were talking about these same issues and the issue that you brought up about denying opportunities to some investors and the notion that the powers that be were really kind of holding the strings, that sort of thing. So that was a really interesting conversation. And I think he lent more towards the, obviously, investor protections are very important, but we really need retail investors to serve the same opportunities as institutions, that sort of thing. Yeah. And investor education is really important too. And people shouldn't be offended by the idea that we want investors to be educated. There's a lot of information to understand in the market. I'll give you an example. Every day we put out a list of securities that our exchanges will trade the next day. It's a file that goes out a number of different ways. If for some reason we're not able to trade a security, we would need to announce that we're suspending trading in that security. A suspension of trading on our markets does not stop that symbol, that stock from trading market-wide. It does has zero impact on any retail investor or anyone. It just means we're not going to trade that symbol that day. And it's usually because of a technical reason. We received over 300 comment letters from retail investors opposing this rule filing, saying it's bad for retail. It's got nothing to do with retail, but that information is, I think, often lost. And there's a lack of trust. This is a bigger conversation. It spreads across so many different areas. 
But that lack of trust is really what we're trying to restore so people don't feel like the markets are not designed for them. Yeah. So one market that some investors or individuals took into their own hands is the crypto markets, because they actually felt exactly what you're saying, that the existing market structure wasn't designed for them. The last couple of weeks, there's been a couple ETFs that have been listed. The volumes have been crazy. They don't seem to be backed by actually the underlying spot, whether it relates to Bitcoin. So there's a bunch of ones that are futures-based, but still you're getting some exposure to the price. How do you guys think about that? You guys are monsters in ETFs. Are you welcoming crypto ETFs coming to the NYSE? And do you see that as massive innovation going forward? Because there's going to be iterations of these things. Yeah, there definitely will be. What started as a revolution will just be an evolution, right? And we'll look to see what changes and what's evolves. When you think at NYSE, we were early investors in Coinbase. We launched and just spun out back from the parent company ICE that is all focused on cryptocurrencies. In the ETF space, you mentioned we just listed the first Bitcoin linked ETF ever. And the market reception was there. So there is a lot of investor demand. To your point, it is the same theme, that constant theme of I'm taking matters into my own hands because I feel like people haven't taken care of me. That's a theme we're seeing in meme stocks. We're seeing it in DeFi. We're seeing it in our political landscape, really across the board. People want their voices to be heard. And so definitely with respect to cryptocurrency and all the technology that sits around it, that will lead to an evolution within the market. And we've been front and center on it in a few different ways, but more broadly, as it becomes more structured and the regulatory framework shakes out, it's going to lead to a broader based evolution. Stacey, if we make it to January, it's 15 years on Fast Money. And for the first 13 and a half, we never mentioned this because I don't think it existed. ESG, how important is it? And what are the things you're doing at the New York Stock Exchange to address it, to integrate it, any of those words you want to use? ESG isn't entirely new. I think how we're talking about it, the level of focus on it is certainly much greater. And that comes down to the environmental social governance issues that companies are focused on, that investors are focused on. We tackle it a number of ways, not just the own actions that we take within our own company, but also within our community. And how do we tap into the 2,400 listed companies? I mean, they represent almost 75% of the S&P 500, and they represent so many public company employees. That universe is really powerful when you solve problems together. So things like changing the diversity profile of corporate boards, focusing on investment dollars, and we announced plans to list natural asset companies so that investors can put their dollars into the natural resources, the biodiversity, the rainforest, water sources that we want to preserve. Investors can invest in that and companies can have a tool to do that. So we're constantly looking at a solutions-based way to solve some of these problems by tapping into the power of our community. Well, Stacy, the New York Stock Exchange, their employees, shareholders are fortunate to have you at the helm. And we've been fortunate to have you join us on the tape. Thanks so much for joining us today, Stacy. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to the 15th year celebration. You'll absolutely be there. Thanks, Stacy. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.